If you were here last week and you heard the message, whether on CD or whether you were here, last week we got a chance to look at uh, Naomi and Ruth, Naomi and Ruth, and we got to watch God work through people who, despite their circumstances, had decisions to make. And last week we saw God work through Ruth's good decisions. She made solid decisions, and God worked through that, and he blessed her and Naomi, and she actually eventually became the a great-grandmother of King David, and then in also in part in line of Jesus Christ. And she made good decisions. This week, we're going to look a little bit on the back side of that, on a slightly different side. And we are actually going to be looking at uh, what I would like to call Love is a Choice Part 2. Love is a Choice Part 2. This week, we are actually going to be in uh, the book of Judges. Now, remember last week, I talked about how Ruth actually takes part in time during the judges. So Ruth actually happens during the time of the judges. This week, we are going to be looking at someone who made slightly different choices, who actually was a judge. And we're going to see how God worked through their decisions. Now, I have a question to ask you. What happens when we make constant, poor, self-centered choices? What happens in your life or when you watch somebody else who makes constant Poor and self-centered choices. What <laughs> exactly? What do you do to your own life? How about the lives of those around you? What does this do to God's plan for your life when you are constantly making these kinds of choices? This week we are actually going to be in Judges chapter 13 primarily, uh, and we will skip around to one or two other books. But the most of our story is going to happen in Judges chapter 13, which actually uh, cycles mostly around one of the longest talked about judges in the entire book of Judges, and that is Samson. Samson, uh, we're going to find out a lot about his life and a little bit about before he was born as well because of the miracle of his birth. The interesting thing about the book of Judges is that it chronologicals the cycle of sin that the nation had. They just wouldn't fully commit to following God. And so their cycle of sin kind of looked like this. You had sin, so they disobeyed God. And what happened is they broke the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. They decided to worship other gods, false idols. And after they would sin, they would go into what we call servitude. The nation would lose its freedoms and serve its enemies. They would become servants to their enemies. They lost their freedoms. They stopped worshiping God. They lost their freedoms. After that, we call that supplication. And Israel would cry to Jehovah God or Yahweh for deliverance. They would call out to God for deliverance. And guess what? God loves them. And after they would fully and honestly repent, he would bring a deliverer. So they would have salvation temporarily, but the problem is it just continued. It was a cycle. They would sin. They would stop worshiping God. They would fall in the enemies, and then it just keeps going around and around and around. And that was the cycle of the book of Judges. Now, in Judges chapter 13, 1, we are going to pick up our story. So I am going to read the first verse. Judges 13, 1, again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, just as we were talking about. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. You may notice, if you've ever read the Bible, that the number 40 keeps popping up. You may have recognized the number 40 having popped up several different times. It uh, rains for 40 days uh, during the flood. Uh, Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days. The Israelites spied on Canaan for 40 days. Goliath taunted 
for 40 days before David showed up. Elijah fled 40 days to Mount Horeb. Ezekiel's prophecies included a 40-day prophecy. Jonah's prophecy also included it. Jesus was tempted for 40 days, and 40 days were between the resurrection and when Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 1. Why is that in there? Why does it keep popping up? I want to tell you that sometimes a number is just a number. Sometimes God has a purpose. God knowing everything, there is no coincidences. But I would be careful and I want to caution you when you see numbers like this and you start trying to figure out does this 40 have a special meaning? God nowhere in scripture tells us to find what they call numerology, finding special meaning in numbers. Some people get sidetracked by this. And while there are interesting facts and very interesting I wouldn't say coincidences because there are no coincidences with God, but don't get sidelined on numbers. That's all I'm saying. There are people out there that say, oh, we have to dive into all of this number stuff and all of this number means this and this three and this seven and this 40. God doesn't tell us that we need to search his word for these kind of numbers. Be aware of it. God uses these time periods, but typically he uses the time period of 40 as a time of refreshing and spiritual change. Now, after 40 years, finally God has shown up. So we're going to read verses 2 through 5. Now, there was a certain man from Zorah, from the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren. She had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children. Stating the obvious. But you shall conceive and bear a son. Now, therefore, please be careful. Do not drink wine or similar drink and do not eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son and no razor shall come upon his head for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. He shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. So God likes to show up when things are impossible. It's kind of like his thing. Uh, when things are possible, he lets us do them. And he waits until things completely, utterly impossible by our standards and then he shows up so that he gets all the glory. But God shows up, and he shows up in a mighty way because this is one of the rare circumstances where God has sent an angel ahead of him saying, hey, this birth is going to be very important to the nation. This is going to be a turning tide in the nation. So this becomes important later in the message and what he says. You'll notice in the guidelines of what the man just said, the angel just said, number one, she is told not to drink wine or strong drink during the pregnancy. Number two, she's not told to any, eat anything that is considered unclean by the Jewish law. And then three, once he's born, no razor is to come upon his head. But the question that you might really want to ask is, what exactly is a Nazarite? You've probably heard this before. You've heard this about Samson. But have you ever actually sat down and looked up what is a Nazarite? We find out in the book of Numbers. So if you'll hold your thumb here for just a second, we will actually pop over to the book of Numbers, just a couple of books before Judges. Numbers chapter 6. I want to tell you what a Nazarite is and what uh, the Lord specifically told Moses what a Nazarite means. You see, the word Nazir means to be separated or consecrated. So Nazir means separated. And this is what God told Moses in uh, Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, Whether a man or a woman consecrates, so this can be a man or a woman, consecrates an offering and takes a vow in Nazarite to separate themselves to the Lord. He shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall neither drink vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from other similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice or eat any fresh grapes or raisins. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. 
All the days of the vow he shall separation, no razor shall come upon his head until his days are fulfilled for which he shall be separated himself to the Lord. For he shall be holy, then he shall let his locks of the hair of his head grow. And all the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. So we know this uh, from this, that these three things have just been said. This is very important to our story later on. Number one, part of the Nazarite vow, you're not allowed to have any strong drink or anything comes from grapevines. It even specifically says grapes or raisins, so nothing from the grapevine. Uh, so no uh, raisin bread, no fruitcake, nothing. Um, the other thing is they're told not to shave or cut their hair during the vow, and they're told not to go near or touch a dead body. This is animal or human. This is just a dead body in general. They are supposed to stay away from it. By Jewish law, if you go near a dead body or you touch a dead body, specifically you handle a dead body, you are ceremonially unclean and you actually have to offer a small sacrifice to become ceremonially clean to be actually back in the temple. Now let's hop back into Judges and we're going to find out a little bit about the uniqueness of this situation. Uh, first, let's look at chapter 13, verse 8. Chapter 13, verse 8. We were just reading. We read a little bit before this. Then Manoah, the man, prayed to the Lord and said, O oh, my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come up again and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born to us. So God has said you're going to have a child, and he has sent an angel to say this. What's really unique about this situation is there aren't many other people in the Bible that this has happened for. This happened for Jesus. But more specifically, this happened for John the Baptist. Uh, and there are not many others that this has happened. So this is kind of a high standard if you think about the other people that have had this kind of birth announcement by an angel. Um, what's neat about here is that he asks the angel of the Lord, please teach us how to raise our kid. Uh, how many of you as a parent, if you ever had the opportunity, ask God, please teach me how to raise my kid? God actually answers it here, and it specifically says that he prayed, Lord, please let the man of God you sent come to us again and teach us what we shall do for the child who's going to be born. And in verse 9, it says, God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of the Lord came to the woman as she was sitting in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So in verse 10, the woman ran in haste and told her husband, look, the man who came to me the other day has just now appeared to me. So God actually sends the angel of the Lord back to instruct them, and then they figure out that it is the angel of the Lord. So Samson has actually been foretold by the angel, and his parents have even been told what is expected of him as they're raising him, which is kind of a neat and unique situation. Now, when we get to chapter 14, 1 through 3, we hop in really quickly into Samson's life. This is the first things that we are told about Samson. So we were just told about his birth, and now we're introduced to his life, and quickly into his life decisions. 14.1 says, Now Samson went down to Timnah, and he saw a woman of Timnah, the daughters of Philistines. He went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore, get her for me as a wife. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren, among all the people, that you must go get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Phil Samson said to his father, Go get her for me, for she pleases me well. 
Something may have gone wrong with the raising. No matter how well you raise your child, no matter how well you're instructed, they still get to make their own choices. As a parent, we get to learn. Our children get to make their own choices. This is Samson's choice. First thing we are introduced to him and first choice that we are seeing of this judge of Israel is that he has chosen to marry outside of what Jewish custom and law allowed, and he wants to marry someone in the Philistines. At this point in life, what is happening? Remember I told you that sin cycle that was happening earlier on? The Philistines are one of the enemy armies that came up and destroyed the Israelites. You're not allowed to marry into them for a couple of reasons. Number one, they were bad because they were killing everybody and enslaving everybody. Number two, they were worshiping false gods. And if you ended up marrying into their culture, you ended up worshiping their false idols. You weren't supposed to be doing it. But Samson automatically does this. This is the first thing that we're told. He all but tells his father, just do this for me. He also, interestingly enough, have you ever heard the term forbidden fruit? The term forbidden fruit, it comes from the Bible, obviously from Adam and Eve, as you may be uh, remembering, but this is something that Samson is seeing, and he just wants it. Uh, sometimes when you were told you can't have it, you want it all the more, and maybe this is the case in Samson, but we don't really fully know, but he notices that he has chosen his, he's chosen his bride. In verse 3, it specifically says at the very end, get her for me, for she pleases me well. Samson does not look at his wife or potential wife's heart or her character. He just is looking at her and says, wow, she's cute. That's about all it seems that he has done. In fact, actually, the Bible, just a couple verses down, it says it again. It repeats it again, that this is his choice. He is making his choice with his eyes. This becomes a constant struggle for him. In fact, actually, controlling his thoughts, I wouldn't even call it a struggle because it, he doesn't even seem to struggle. He just seems to jump right into it. He's just like, yeah, let's do whatever I fancy. So Judges chapter 14, verse 4. But his father and mother did know that it was of the Lord, that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines, for at the time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. The author has noted here that this is something that the Lord is allowing because this is going to be the beginning of the change of the Philistines' hold over Israel. But this is Samson's poor choices. Samson's automatically, he's going directly after his eyes. Think about Ruth last week. We talked about her humbleness and her willingness to go out of her way to serve others. This is a self-serving attitude that Samson has. God's going to use it, and he's going to use it in crazy awesome ways, but he's using vastly different choices, good and bad, for his ultimate glory and his ultimate purpose. But they have an effect on his life eventually. So, uh, five through seven, read five through seven with me. So Samson goes down to Timnah with his father and mother, and they come to the vineyards of Timnah. Now to his surprise, a young lion comes roaring against him. Now when the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, he tore the lion apart as one would have torn a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand, but he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Then he went down and he talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. Again, he's talking about that she has pleased him well. He goes down the road, and God gives him this strength. Automatically, God has given this supernatural strength. He's ripped this young, strong lion apart without even trying. What's interesting here is what is about to happen. He has just killed the lion. That's fine. He is defending himself. But what happens next is critical. Verse, uh, let's see, here we go. I'll go with verse 8 first. After some time when he returned to get her, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of that lion. He, in 9, he took some of it in his hands and he went along eating. When he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them and they also ate. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. 
Interesting here in 8 and 9 is that Samson has no regard for the Nazarite vow that he is apparently part of. As we already looked, he's not supposed to be touching dead bodies. He's gone back. He just saw the honey in there, grabbed it. Now, having food from this dead body. Now, part of the marriage process, ours works a little bit faster. We get engaged and we get married a little bit quicker. This time period could have been up to a year long. This could have been a very long time. Their time periods are a little bit longer and slower and drawn out in their marriage process and the way everything would have went. So this would have been a little bit of time. It still would have been a dead body. And at the end of the day, he also, if you'll notice, in his own greed and what he wanted to do for himself, he got enough for his mother and father, which would have made them unceremonially ceremonially unclean as well. He actually would have caused them to essentially sin without knowing it. They didn't know. They just thought it was a gift. So they were in their ignorance, but they were eating something from a dead animal that was formed inside. He was causing, his poor choices were causing other people to fall out of what their temple would have allowed them to do and to be able to come back in and to sacrifice. His choices were affecting those around him. Now, Judges chapter 14, verse 15. The wedding starts to happen, and in verse 14, uh, 15, it says this. Mm, Okay, let, let me stop right here, actually. That's right at the end of it. What happens next is that Samson goes down and he has a wedding party. And during that wedding party, he actually entertains his guests with a riddle. Riddles were very common in this culture. So there was just one of the forms of entertainment. He comes up and he says a riddle. He ends up talking about the lion. He talks about the sweeter. Um, and he uses this riddle in verse 12. It says, Samson then said to them, let me pose a riddle to you. If you can correctly solve and explain it to me within seven days of the feast by the end of the marriage feast, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. But if you cannot explain it to me, verse 13, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said, okay, pose your riddle that we may hear it. So he says it to him in verse 14. Out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. And for three days, they could not explain the riddle. He has confused these guys, and it's starting to become an embarrassment. Samson did this very hard riddle, very odd riddle on purpose. He was trying to win something out of it. He wasn't just doing this for joking pleasure. He was trying to to show that he was better than these people. And it's very obvious very quickly here in verse 15. But it came to pass on on the seventh day that they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband that we may explain the riddle to us or we will burn you and your father's house with fire. What? Okay, so during the marriage feast, he has incited the rest of her village to such wrath that they are ready to burn his house down, his, father, his uh, father-in-law and his new wife's house down because he's gonna embarrass them so much. So they, she goes and she starts uh, nagging him, essentially just saying, oh, this is gonna be horrible for me. <clears throat> and it doesn't go well for Samson. Uh, she continues to weep for him. In verse 16, Samson's wife wept on him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You have posed a riddle to the sons of my people, but you have not explained it to me. And he said, look, I have not explained it to my father, my mother, so why should I explain it to you? He's very self-considerate, only of himself. He's thinking only of himself. And she's saying, but you need to tell me. You need to tell me. So after she weeps on him for the seven days while the feast lasted, it happened on the seventh day that he told her because she pressed on him here in verse 17, she, he explained the riddle to her and the sons of the people. So she ends up passing this riddle on. Samson is a little bit irate. By verse 18, 
This is his response because they actually come up and they solve his riddle because of her, what she said. In verse 18, it says, so the men of the city said to him on the seventh day, as the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? He said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. This shows you what little love he has for his wife. Yes, it's a metaphor, but calling your wife a cow during your wedding week is not a good thing. It's never good entire marriage, especially not during your wedding week. Uh, you can tell from here how much he actually truly does not love the woman he is about to marry because of his sentiments. He just says, you know what, you guys cheated. He still holds up his end of the bargain. He's honest in that way. But you can see where his heart is and is not clearly because of these verses. Now, in 14, 19 through 20, we find out what happens next. 19 through 20. It says this. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on him mightily, and he went down to Ash, Ash, wow, Ash Kellen and killed 30 of their men and took their apparel, who gave them changes of clothing, and those who explained the riddle. So his anger was aroused, and he went back up to his father's house. Samson's wife had given to a companion who had been his best man. Okay, this guy is a great role model uh, if you want to have a role model for your kids. No, I'm just kidding. This guy is a horrible role model. So he goes down because his lie, his riddle has not worked. He's mad that he's now on the line for 30 garments. So he goes and kills 30 people to make good on his promise. That's the logic here. What's even more interesting is where all this is happening. And I don't know how well you can see this map. You'll notice that he is actually from the town of Zora up here. Timnah is not very far away, right on the corner of the border there. And then Ashkelon is all the way over here where he goes to, uh, to get those, uh, the robes and, and to be able to satisfy that riddle and what he was supposed to be holding up on his end of the bargain. So you can kind of see just visually where he's going. It's not very far, and then Tim is on the border there. Now, with Samson, he always makes some very interesting choices. You'll notice that with Samson also, that if I go back to this one right here, he has made some very poor choices. He continues to affect those around him. Yes, this is slowly being used for God's purpose in destroying the Philistines, but these are not amazing. These are not what I would call great life choices. I would not recommend my children or your children. But what's interesting is that God can use you in spite of yourself. My mom has this uh, fridge magnet, uh, and it says that no one is useless. They can always serve as a bad example. Maybe you've seen this magnet before. Maybe Samson's face should be used on this magnet. Um, despite Samson's self-centeredness, God is still using him to whittle down the Philistines. It slowly happens again and again throughout the story. What's interesting here is that, did you notice at the very end of what we just read, he didn't even go back to his wife? In verse 20, it said, and Samson's wife uh, was given to his companion, verse 19, uh, so his anger was aroused, he went back up to his father's house. At the end of it, he caused his wife all of this pain, and then he goes to his dad and mom's house instead of going with her. So she ends up being given to another. He he doesn't care for this woman. He, he just automatically leaves her. Though she was supposed to be his wife, he just completely leaves her. What's really amazing is what happens next because he just went to his mom and dad's house instead of going with his new wife. So she's been given away and given to another. Let's read verses one through three. This is great. 15, one through three. After a while in the time of the wheat harvest, so it's a couple months later, 
It happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat. This is his I'm sorry present. Hey, honey, I've brought a goat. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, you know, we had our wedding week. I didn't even go home with you. I went to my mom and dad's. Here's a goat. This should make up for it. Uh, he visits his wife with a young goat, and he says, let me go into my wife into her room. But her father would not permit him to go in. Her father said, I really thought you thoroughly hated her, so therefore I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister better than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to him, this time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. So let's get Samson's reasoning straight. So he gets married. During the marriage, he has a trick that he goes and he tricks all of the, the new spouse's friends and community with. And then he gets mad because he tells his wife the answer. She tells it to the other people. So he's mad that they found out the answer. So he goes and kills 30 people. And then he comes back and he goes home to mom and dad instead of with his new wife. And she's given to somebody else. In fact, the best man at the wedding, which has just been told twice, the best man just got the wife. And now he's saying he's blameless. He's saying that he, it's not his fault. Can you see the irony here of this is his train of thought? This is a self-centered person's thinking. You do all of these things. This happens, this happens. I make this poor choice and it's still not my fault. This is everybody else. Let me tell you something. If wherever you go, everybody is always against you, it's probably not everybody else. If wherever you go, no matter where you go, everybody is always against you, it's probably not them because it's always following you. This is Samson. He continually makes poor choices. <sighs> Samson did not think highly of his wife. And let me warn you, as you have private thoughts, we all have private thoughts. We have an inner monologue, and when nobody else is around, we tend to think. And when you start viewing people in a certain way in private, you start acting that same way in public. Your private life will become part of your public life eventually. You can't completely close it off. Be careful of what you dwell on. Be careful of what you think about in your private thoughts. They will slowly, inevitably creep in to the rest of your life. And the way you think, so you can badmouth someone in private, eventually you will start treating them in the same disrespect in public. It will carry over. Be careful. Your life is related both in your private and your public. And Samson thought that his private thoughts of self-centeredness were perfectly fine and it carried over to his actual deeds. So Samson's life, wow. Samson's life stands in stark contrast to what we are called as Christians. We are called as Christians. This is the other book that we're going to go into is Romans chapter 12, verses nine through 21. Romans chapter 12, verses nine through 21. I want to look at what Paul has called us through God's word to be as Christians and think about what we've been learning about Samson and then what God actually calls us to. 9 through 21. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Be kindly, affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. 
Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for the good things in the sight of all men. And if it is possible, do as much as depends on you to live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's a list. That is a long list. If you want to know what God expects of you as a Christian, this is a really good list. I'm a list guy. I love, uh, you might be a list person as well. It just seems to break it down. The people uh, in the Old Testament in Israel, they wanted a list and God gave them 10 commandments and they couldn't follow it. And there were a bunch of don'ts. These are a bunch of do's. Have a genuine love. He tells you to not do what Samson did. He tells you to live peaceably with others. Don't avenge yourself. Feed your enemy. God is calling us to so much more. We first looked at the question, you know, what happens when we constantly make poor and self-centered choices? Think about Samson's life. Samson was set up perfectly to serve God. His birth was foretold. Very few other people in the Bible have had this happen. He was a Nazarite chosen from birth. He was set up. His family was asking God uh, how to raise him correctly. And he was supposed to deliver his nation from the Philistines. In many ways he did, but the sad thing is that God delivered from the Philistines beside him. It wasn't his choice. It wasn't him actually doing it. It was God working outside of Samson. His reckless abandonment of fulfilling his own desires led to his constant troubles. And we didn't even cover most of Samson's life that you probably remember. There's a lot more there. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Ultimately, his selfish actions lead to his own death. But hopefully this is enough to make a point. We as Christians are called to think about those who we are living around and to love them first. Samson failed miserably at loving those who he was around. He did not love anyone but himself. Romans 12, 9 through 21, read it, learn from it, know it. Let it sink in. It takes sacrifice and humility. In fact, actually, the beginning of that chapter begins with very familiar verses if you've been in church for any time. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's not easy. It's easy to live a selfish life. It's partly why our nation does so well at it. It's hard to live a humble life of service towards others. You have to become a living sacrifice. And the problem, as my old teacher used to say, is that living sacrifices tend to want to get off the altar when it gets hot. You have been called to something so much more. And I love this quote, and I want to end here. The problem with Christianity is not that it has been tried and found wanting, but that it has been found difficult and left untried. People come into a relationship with Christ, and they see that Christian living is not easy. It is so much easier to live a selfish life. But we are called to so much more. God is calling you to serve in love those around you, whether you agree with them or not. What are the choices that you are making? What do the people around you see? Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity to just dig into your word. Thank you that we can learn from Samson's life, uh, which was a filled life of selfish desires, but you still worked through him. And Lord, I know you want us to work in ways that are so much greater because we have chosen to love you first. Lord, help each and every single person who hears this to choose to love you first. 
Help us to look at your word like a chapter in Romans and study it and know it and let it sink in. Help it to direct our lives. Father, I ask that you continue to work through us. Lord, help us to change the community around us because we love you first and we love our neighbors as ourselves. It's in Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen.